Our New Testament lesson today comes from John chapter 5. As you turn there, I just think it worth remembering that already in John chapter 5, it has opened with Jesus healing a lame man on the Sabbath, and in doing that, greatly angering the Jews, then claiming to be the Son of God and therefore equal with God himself, further angering them. And in response to their accusation to him, he has entered this discourse, the first half of which we read last week, and the second half we'll take now, where Jesus is going to bring forth witnesses of himself to his deity. So we'll start in verse 30 of chapter 5 and continue through verse 47. I can do nothing on my own. As I hear, I judge, and my judgment is just, because I seek not my own will, but the will of him who sent me. If I alone bear witness about myself, my testimony is not true. There is another who bears witness about me, and I know that the testimony that he bears about me is true. You sent to John, and he has borne witness to the truth. Not that the testimony that I receive is from man, but I say these things so that you may be saved. He was a burning and shining lamp, and you were willing to rejoice for a while in his light. But the testimony that I have is greater than that of John. For the works that the Father has given me to accomplish, the very works that I'm doing, bear witness about me that the Father has sent me. And the Father who sent me has himself borne witness about me. His voice you have never heard, his form you have never seen, and you do not have his word abiding in you, for you do not believe the one whom he has sent. You search the scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life, and it is they that bear witness about me. Yet you refuse to come to me that you may have life. I do not receive glory from people, but I know that you do not have the love of God within you. I have come in my Father's name, and you do not receive me. If another comes in his own name, you will receive him. How can you believe when you receive glory from one another and do not seek the glory that comes from the only God? Do not think that I will accuse you to the Father. There is one who accuses you. Moses, on whom you have set your hope. For if you believed Moses, you would believe me, for he wrote of me. But if you do not believe his writings, how will you believe my words? This is the word of the Lord. Amen. You may be seated. I'd like to pray for us. Father, thank you for your word, which we have just heard. I pray that as it's fallen on our ears, your spirit would move it to our hearts, and then from our hearts to our lips and our conversation, that as the rain falls and doesn't return void, so your spirit would cause your word to do that for which it's intended. 
We pray and ask for your help. In Jesus' name, amen. God in the Dock. This is the title of a short essay that C.S. Lewis wrote, God in the Dock. And in this essay, Lewis reflects on several reasons that sharing the Christian faith is difficult in the modern age. He writes, quote, the greatest barrier to evangelism that I have met is the almost total absence from the minds of my audience of any sense of sin, end quote. So whereas for the vast majority of human history, it could be assumed that people had some sense of guilt before God, whatever deity that might be, that's not the case any longer. For the modern man, the category of sin has largely fallen out of use. Lewis writes, quote, the ancient man approached God as the accused approaches the judge. For the modern man, the roles are reversed. The modern man is the judge. God is in the dock, end quote. The dock being that portion of the courtroom where the accused person sits. So we have here an image of a large man in a judge's robe bringing charges against a small God who must explain himself. And to be fair, Lewis writes in regard to modern man, he's quite a kindly judge. If God should have a reasonable defense for being the God who permits war, poverty, or disease, the man is ready to listen to it. But the important thing is that man is on the bench and God is in the dock, end quote. Now, none of us, I believe, would use that language, of course, calling ourselves the judge and putting God in the dock. No, of course, God is the judge. But I think if we are honest, we are at times guilty of this reality. We might not look at God and say, explain yourself to me, or we might. But when another mundane day opens, do our hearts grumble or despair? We might not say God is in the dock, but when at midlife or any point in life, our lives don't look like we expected, do we humbly pray thy kingdom come? Or do we frantically try to muscle one more time into place my kingdom come? And we might not say, okay, God, I acquit you. But who among us doesn't at times expect God to give us some reason for doing what he does? See, in a culture which, as Ed Welch puts it, people are big and God is small. Today's passage is a radical call to remember that God is big and we are small. Let's not miss Jesus because we're insisting that he follow our rules and expectations. Let's surrender to him. As our passage begins in verse 30, may we pray with Jesus. I seek not my own will but the will of him 
who sent me. See, today's passage is drenched with legal language. It begins with judgment. Witness seven times. Testimony, Moses, accusation. In a way, it is helpful to see this as a courtroom. And at first, it does seem that Jesus is on trial. He's being persecuted. He's being accused by the Jews. They point their finger at him and charge, Jesus, you've broken the Sabbath. Jesus, you've busted our monotheism by claiming to be God. And they're angry, and they seek to kill him, we read earlier in the chapter. And in response to this, Jesus says something which at face value seems startling. Verse 32. If I alone bear witness about myself, my testimony is not true. Hmm? Like, is Jesus saying that his word alone is not trustworthy? Are we silly to sing and to teach our children to sing, "'Tis so sweet to trust in Jesus, just to take him at his word?" No, of course not. In fact, and this is worth remembering, the next time the Jews bring charges against him in John chapter 8, Jesus will say the exact opposite of what he said here. John 8:31, John 8:14, "Even if I do bear witness about myself, my testimony is true. So what is Jesus saying here in John 5:31? He's honoring the Jewish legal code, which in Deuteronomy 19 says that one witness is not enough to accuse anyone, but that two or three are required. He knows who he's talking to, and he will play on their field, but wait. Watch how he turns the tables. Back in Deuteronomy, it is the accuser who must bring forth the witnesses. But Jesus is being accused here. So when he, the accused, brings forth witnesses, we're, we're left scratching our heads. Who's actually on trial here? See, for the remainder of this discourse, Jesus is going to show that it is the Jews, not himself, who stand condemned. It is they, not he, who are guilty before God. He is, as our passage opened, about to bring judgment where judgment is due. And by falsely assuming that they know God and his ways, these Jews are unable to truly see and know God in Jesus, so they stand guilty and condemned. Man is in the dark. Jesus is the judge. It's always that way. And so let's not miss Jesus because we're insisting that he follow our rules and our expectations. Let's surrender to him. We'll organize the remainder of this passage around the four witnesses that Jesus brings. John the Baptist, the works that Jesus does, the Father himself, and the scriptures. So first, in verses 33 through 35, Jesus brings his first witness, John the Baptist. You sent to John, and he's 
borne witness to the truth, not that the testimony that I receive is from man, but I say these things so that you may be saved. He was a burning and shining lamp, and you were willing for a season to rejoice in his light. Now, most scholars agree at this point, John is either dead, killed, or in prison. Um, And Jesus reminds the Jews, who for a season highly esteemed John and saw him to be the prophet that he was, that they saw John bore witness to him. Do you remember John's response to these Jews in the first chapter when they asked him? John said, I am not the Christ. And speaking of Jesus, he said, this is the son of God. But when John faded, when his burning and shining lamp went out, these Jews failed to see the true light of the world to whom John had pointed. And so why does Jesus bring all this up? This John the Baptist business, not for his own sake. Notice the grace in verse 34. But I say these things so that you may be saved. There's no indication in this passage that these Jews who are bringing accusation against Jesus will be saved. This passage ends with their clear condemnation. They are, back in the words of chapter 1, his own people who did not receive him. And yet, Jesus reminds them of John's testimony so that they may be saved. See, in all of God's judgment, there is grace for those who will hear it. Again, the words of chapter 1. But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name... He gave the right to become children of God. And this reality is repeated over and over throughout the Gospel of John. Chapter 3, verse 18. Whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe is condemned already. Judgment and grace crashing together, hand in hand, side by side. So, brother, sister, do you tremble? at a holy God, perhaps you don't put God in the dock. Perhaps you know all too well that you are in the dock, that you stand guilty of sin. Sure, you may say our culture denies the reality of sin, but I know my own sin. Like Christian in the Pilgrim's Progress, it's the heavy burden that I can't rid myself of. For those crushed, feeling the weight of condemnation or shame, hear the gospel of verse 34. Jesus is saying this so that you may be saved. And how? Believe in him. Fly to him, the one who even now, as he speaks in this text, is heading to the cross to bear your sin. Believe in him. And the second witness that Jesus brings forth is greater than John, the witness of his works. 
So in verse 36, Jesus says, but the testimony that I have is greater than that of John for the works that the Father has given me to accomplish, the very works that I am doing bear witness about me that the Father has sent me. And notice two things. First, the higher degree of greatness. So the witnesses are increasing in importance. And second, remember what Nicodemus said to Jesus when he first approached him in the night back in chapter 3. Speaking of him and the Jews, Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher come from God, for no one can do the signs that you do unless God is with him. You see, the Jews knew that when the Messiah came, he would do miracles. They expected that. And Jesus is saying, I am doing those. These miracles, which we've seen three of so far, water into wine, the healing of the official son and the healing of the lame man, and which we will see four more of, which will culminate in Lazarus being raised from the dead, are all signs pointing to the fact that this man standing before him is God, the Messiah. Yes, the signs show compassion. Yes, the signs show love. Yes, the signs show power. But before all of these, they show us that Jesus is the Messiah and that we are to believe in and follow him. And the Jews missed this because he wasn't acting like they thought he should. So let's not miss Jesus because we're insisting that he follow our rules or our expectations. Let's surrender to him. And the third witness is the father himself. In verses 37 and 38, Jesus tells us that the father himself has borne witness to him. Then again, he lays into these Jews with four reasons that they do not know the father. Notice the repetition of you. His voice you have never heard, his form you have never seen, and you do not have his word abiding in you, for you do not believe the one whom he has sent. Notice how the first three of these are contingent on that last one. Why have they never heard or seen the Father? Why do they not have his word abiding in them? They don't believe the one whom he sent. Remember last week, the son can do nothing of his own accord, but only what he sees the father doing. So they don't hear the witness of God himself because they don't believe in Jesus. Are we, like these Jews, sometimes confused about what God is doing? Do we wonder what he's up to in this life? Can we not see what he's doing in the life of our children or our parents? Perhaps you look around at the world and you feel confused by the always present chaos and confusion. Do we want to know what God is up to? Let's look at Jesus. Let's believe in Jesus. Ah, but I struggle to do just that. Look at the signs. Here he is at a wedding, 
changing water into wine. Here he is meeting a desperate man on the side of the road whose faith is dangling by a thread and healing his son. And there he is telling a man who's been lame for 38 years to stand up and walk. And all of these are signs meant to point us to Jesus, to help us believe, believe in Jesus. Let's not miss Jesus because we are insisting that he follow our rules and our expectations. Let's surrender to him. And the last and greatest sign, witness, is the scriptures. So starting in verse 39, Jesus says to these Jews that they've missed the whole point of the scriptures. And, and let's pause for a minute and be reminded that these guys were serious students of the scripture. They would have had large portions memorized. They would have regularly devoted long periods of time to the scrupulous study of the scriptures. And yet Jesus lays into them because they think that the study of the scripture itself is what leads to life. When the scripture is simply a witness to Jesus. Imagine a large, clear window that opens to a beautiful mountain range, snow-capped peaks. How silly would it be for someone to go and say, man, look at this window. Look at the glass and the frame and the blinds. Someone really put this window together well. No, the purpose of the window is to see what it opens to. And in the same way, this is true of the scripture. Any reading of the word that does not direct us to Jesus Christ ultimately misses the point. Therefore, there is a way to read the scripture that does not lead to life. How? By reading it without seeing Jesus. Sally Lloyd-Jones is really helpful here, as many of us read or have read to our children. The subtitle of her Jesus Storybook Bible, Every Story Whispers His Name. Jesus directly says this in verse 46, For if you believed Moses, you would believe in me, for he wrote of me. And he is not speaking here of like one place in Moses or the Old Testament that Moses wrote of Jesus. No, the entirety of it, it all points to Christ. Studying the scriptures without seeing, worshiping, and obeying Jesus is foolishness and does not lead to life. And our brief study of John has already taught us this. From chapter 1, he is the word that was in the beginning before Moses wrote in the beginning. He is the Lamb of God to which all the lambs that Moses wrote about point. In chapter 3, he is the one who's lifted up in the wilderness as Moses lifted up the serpent. 
In chapter 4, he is the living water of which the water in Jacob's well that Moses wrote about was simply a foretaste. Moses wrote of Jesus. What would it be like each morning or scrambled afternoon or tired evening before we open the scriptures just to pray and say, God, would you help me see Jesus here? Why do we read our Bibles? First and foremost, to know and believe in Jesus. At every juncture, the scriptures point to him. And the Jews have missed this because Jesus doesn't act or look like they expected or desired the Messiah too. And this is helpful at this point to note why Jesus says these Jews have missed the point. Our go-to sometimes is to say, I need more training. Perhaps what these Jews needed would be to go take uh, Christ in the Old Testament from some well-respected evangelical and reformed seminary. And, and let's not belittle the importance of good training. That, that is significant, but that's not what Jesus says here. He says the reason that they remain unconvinced about Jesus, even after hearing all these witnesses, the reason they cannot see him in the scriptures is told us in verse 44. Jesus says, how can you believe? When you receive glory from one another and do not seek the glory that comes from God. The glory that comes from God is Jesus. Remember John 1.14? And the word became flesh and dwelt among us and we have seen his glory Glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. They missed out on Jesus because they were looking to one another for their sense of honor, security, identity. The passage ends with a final question from Jesus, met by silence from the Jews. How will you believe my words? Their silence shows that they don't believe him. They stand condemned. The four witnesses have proven them guilty, guilty of unbelief. They do stand condemned. Accused by Moses himself, the very one in whom they have put their trust. They missed the glory of God in Jesus because he didn't meet their expectations. They found themselves in the dock, condemned before King Jesus. He is infinitely big, and they are very, very small. A few questions. Will we too fail to see Jesus because he doesn't meet our expectations? Or will we confess that our expectations are misdirected, that we are small and that apart from him we do stand condemned and then fly to him in belief and hope? 
Will we too, in our anger, point our finger at him and accuse him of not doing things our way? Or will we humble ourselves and admit that we are wrong, like the man at the beginning of this chapter, blind, lame, and paralyzed, in need of his healing touch? Will we too miss the glory of God in Jesus because we're too caught up in trying to please other people and finding our identity in the fear of man? In every situation, do we ask, which do I love more, what Jesus thinks or what this person thinks? Will we see that he is everything? And that even if we were to gain the whole world, we would have nothing if we don't have him? Here's the beauty in all of this. Where is the Gospel of John heading? To another trial. A trial when, again, Jesus will be accused by his people, condemned as a guilty man to death on a cross. In a way, then, God is in the dark but not because you or I or any person puts him there, not because we point our finger at him or because he's guilty. The trial at the end of John makes that crystal clear. He's there because we are condemned. He's there because he loves us and knows that we are the guilty ones on trial. He knows that apart from him, we would have no hope he willingly goes to trial, to the cross, to stand in our place. As Peter says, the righteous for the unrighteous to bring you to God. And this is why we sing, Oh, may I then in him be found, dressed in his righteousness alone, faultless, to stand before the throne. Let's pray. Father, thank you for this, your word. I pray once more as prayed in the beginning that you would be faithful by your spirit to move it from our ears to our heart and then from our heart to our lips in conversation. That as the rain falls on the ground, and does not return void, so your word, by your faithfulness, would do what it is intended to do among us. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.